Thank you very much for the invitation. I think climate change is a very interesting issue, not just practically because it's uh, very salient, but philosophically it's interesting because principles of justice are normally constructed to apply within one society for one generation amongst human beings. And what climate change throws up is a, an issue that doesn't apply within one society because it's global. And it doesn't apply within one generation because it's intergenerational. The emissions of greenhouse gases affect future people and we are affected by the emissions of past people. And we're dealing with risk and uncertainty. And we're also dealing with a natural world. And all these complications mean that standard principles of justice might somewhat struggle. And as you can see, my question is kind of a simple one. And actually the answer is very simple because who should bear the burdens is probably you and me, people who are... Uh, sufficiently well off to be studying. But the uh, arguments to get us to that conclusion are quite complex, I think. So here's how I'm going to structure it. I assume you do know a lot about climate change, but I'm just going to put up some figures and graphs as well just to illustrate it. Then I'm going to have a first stab at what might be an appropriate principle for the question, who should pay the costs of combating climate change? And run through four objections, and then look at a second principle, and then come up with a, a combined view. So let's just start with the empirics. So um, uh, climate change is unanimously recognised by climate scientists to have these three malign effects. Uh, increase in temperatures, increase in sea levels, and increased frequency of freak weather events like storm surges, heat waves, sudden flooding. And AR4 stands for the fourth report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so the IPCC. AR4 is its fourth assessment report, and it runs various scenarios. Uh, so that shows you what it thinks temperatures are going to do over the next couple of decades and what they have done. And this runs it even further into um, a couple more centuries. I mean, sea levels are projected to rise by uh, up to 59 centimetres in the next 100 years. Or I think it's between 9 centimetres and 59, which is a huge gap, right? But even 9 centimetres can be very harmful. And if you just want to know what causes it, well, uh, this graph shows you what they call radiation forcing. So CO2 emissions, uh, methane, which is incredibly potent, these are all things that cause it. And these are also things that slow it down. Albedo effect, for example, is if you have planes that release uh, fumes in the air, it makes the Earth uh, more reflective to the sun, so the sun's rays bounce off, and therefore there's less warming. But the thing, that I guess, to focus on is CO2 and methane and those ones showing the positive radiative forcing. Okay, so that's just some scientific background. I'm not a scientist. I think the appropriate methodology for someone like myself is just to say, well, let's look at the most authoritative body, which is the IPCC, run with its accounts, be aware of the objections. And I should say some of the objections say it's far too conservative. So on sea level rise, for example, it factors out the collapse of ice sheets. If ice sheets, like the West Antarctic ice sheet melt and the Greenland ice sheet, then sea levels can rise by 12 metres. So um, you may be familiar with some criticisms of the IPCC that say, well, it's a bit alarmist. You should therefore note that some think it's way too conservative. But I don't want to go down the empirics, really. I want to say, well, how should we deal with this problem? Now, if, if between dinner and here I dropped um, some litter on the way, uh, I imagine you would expect that I ought to pick it up. Actually, does anyone dissent from that? Okay, so I'm assuming 100% um, energy and, and full, full agreement with that proposition. Right there. 
And the underlying thought might be there that if you, if you create a problem, you ought to clear it up, that the polluter should pay. So many people apply this principle to answer the question, who should, combat, who should um, pay the burden for combating climate change? Well, those who've emitted the most and, and in proportion with their emissions. If they've created the problem, they should clear it up. And as I hope the, the litter example, banal as it is, uh, might illustrate, it's quite an intuitive idea. If you just combine that with the empirical point that the main contributors to anthropogenic climate change are affluent industrialised countries, then the burden really should fall squarely on them. Two, I should say, is a, is a considerable simplification because, I guess, empirically, the main contributors are affluent people, some of whom uh, live in um, developing countries. So I'm putting it in a very statist way there, which is oversimplifying it. You get high emitters in poor countries and low emitters in high countries. But generally the pattern is that. And the Brazilian proposal was the, the Brazilian government in 1997 in the negotiations of the Kyoto Protocol said that well, a fair allocation of burden sharing should reflect the contribution of affluent industrialised countries to the problem. And if you want to know roughly what that means, when 76% of emissions... This was in about 1997. 76% have come from the industrialised world. So overwhelmingly, the burden should be borne by them. Now, the, I guess there are two ways one might react to this principle. Uh, one is you might think it's a sound principle but doesn't easily apply to this problem. Or you might think it's an unsound principle. I'm going to have look at four charges. I mean, three of them are objections and one of them is a call for clarification. And some of them challenge the principle and other ones challenge its application. So the first one doesn't challenge the principle at all, it just says it doesn't apply well to climate change. And it goes back to the point I made at the start, maybe there are some problems that we work with principles that suit current generation in one society. So how well does it cope with um, the emissions of past generations? I mean, emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions have, uh, well, have taken place ever since there were human beings because we emit carbon dioxide all the time. But the increase has really started since the Industrial Revolution. So many people say, well, I should pay for my GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, but why should I pay the bill for those who are dead? Now, you could take two responses here, as you can see. I mean, some people are collectivists about moral agency, and they will say, well, look, states... <coughs> countries are the polluters and therefore they persist over time. I mean some states don't and some new states get born but generally states persist over time and so I as a contemporary Britain should pay because Britain omitted in 1840, 1850 and so on and Britain is alive today so there is no problem, the polluter still is alive. So the, you know, the country is the appropriate level of analysis. I'm not particularly happy with that type of analysis for two reasons. One is um, countries don't do all the emitting. I mean, when I take a plane flight, it's my decision. It's not Britain made me. So unless you deny, deny any individual agency of, of persons, firms, and so on, that's just implausibly uh, exclusive. And the second thing is you might worry, why, why should I have to pay the bill taken out by earlier people? So you might have doubts about, for example, if a government took out loans in the past, why should I have to pay it back? I didn't take it out. If a government emitted in the past, why should I have to pay for that now? So one might have reason to prefer a more individualist reply. And this says, yes, fair, uh, I didn't emit in 1850 or 1900. However, I currently enjoy goods that 
uh, have benefited from the emissions of the past and the cost of those goods has not been fully met. So if I inherit the benefit, I should also inherit the cost. So think of an example like this. Suppose I inherit a suit from my dad and it turns out he hadn't finished paying for it. He'd just paid enough for the trousers but not the jacket. So I inherit this suit and then the person comes up to me saying, well, look, there's an externality, there's a cost here and he owes me and he's not long, no longer alive. You owe me. Well, what am I to say? I've inherited a benefit. The cost to other people has not been fully paid for. I think either I should hand back half the suit, that's why he's paid enough for the trousers, they can get the jacket back, or I can keep the goods, but then I must pay the bill for them. And this is an utterly individualist-oriented reply. It says, you didn't omit them, but you have goods in your possession for which the bill hasn't been paid. You either hand them back, or you retain them, but you must then pay off the bill. So I don't think the objection from past generations shows why current people, who are, people who are currently alive, shouldn't have to pay. They can pay not just for those that they've omitted, but those they've inherited. Um, this is just to make an empirical point. Actually, most of the emissions that have occurred have happened in the last 25, 30 years. So, you know, 1840, it's fairly small. 1920, it was bigger. It's increased by more than fivefold from 1950 to 2006. <coughs> so on a purely empirical level, we shouldn't exaggerate the significance of past emissions. So sometimes then people say, well, look, uh, I should be held liable for things where I should have known about the ill effects. But we didn't know, and our ignorance was excusable. So the uh, polluter-based principle shouldn't really be pushed too far back in time. And imposing a strict liability would be unfair. Uh, we weren't at fault. So again, you can make an empirical point. Well, actually, people have known since, let's say, 1990. That was the first assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Say 1988, because that's when the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Programme decided to set up the IPCC. There is an issue about who we're talking about when we're talking about who knows, because uh, you might hold different standards for individuals, your ordinary man or woman on the street, than you would to, say, government ministers of industry and uh, the environment. So they should have known at an earlier date. But let's look at some of the moral responses. So the, the reply saying we're excusably ignorant assumes we aren't at fault. But some people will say, well, actually, you were at fault, even before the science was settled, because there was enough evidence in the air to think there was a high risk of this harmful effect. And you should have engaged in more risk-averse activity, but you didn't. So you can't just say you weren't at fault because there wasn't sufficiently established knowledge when it was the case that there was enough evidence to take a precautionary approach. Now that will get us into a lot of problems talking about what an appropriate precautionary approach would mean. But what they tend to mean is, well, if you could have engaged in another course of action that would have had no loss to your vital interests and would have had the effect that you weren't exposing others to risk of harming their vital interests, then you shouldn't have done it. But the, again, the key point here is you can be held liable for not being sufficiently risk-averse, for being negligent, in fact. Uh, just on a purely um, snide level, one might say this argument is often offered in bad faith because ever since we've known about the links between greenhouse gases and climate change, uh, we've increased the emissions even more rapidly. So it would sound ill coming from someone's mouth to say, well, I didn't know, I should be excused, when when they did know, they rocketed uh, their uh, emissions.
But let me just mention a third kind of reservation or might have about the excusable ignorance plea. I mean, I, I should say, I used to think that excusable ignorance was a good reason for not charging people here. Uh, and part of my reasoning there was, it's just unfair. Uh, and, you know, many of you are students, you might think, it's unfair to dock me marks for a late submission when I wasn't told of any deadline. So from the duty bearer point of view, it seems unfair. But with greenhouse gas emissions, those people who are engaging in it are benefiting substantially from it. And this somewhat undercuts my sympathy for the putative duty bearer. You could design it so that the dues they pay don't leave them any worse off than they were beforehand. They may even still be better off than beforehand. Otherwise, we have a rather asymmetric attitude towards benefits and costs. It says you can keep any benefits, even unexpected benefits, even benefits that you could excusably, you said not to have foreseen. But any costs that you couldn't have foreseen, well, those should just be wiped off the slate. And that seems, that asymmetry seems implausible. So, again, I don't think this, this objection really undercuts the application of the Pluto Pays principle to climate change. Here's another objection. I mean, David Miller at Nuffield College in Oxford gave some Tanner lectures recently. And he starts from the point that emitting greenhouse gases is a threshold problem. That is to say, you can emit lots of greenhouse gases and it doesn't create a problem. It's only when the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere reaches a certain concentration, maybe 450 parts per million or 350 parts per million. It's quite controversial where it is. But the, the thing is, everyone agrees that you can emit up to a certain level and there aren't harmful effects. So then David Miller says, well... We should uh, dismiss past emissions. <coughs> we can regard them as irrelevant. Because if we, in the contemporary generation, hadn't emitted greenhouse gases, there wouldn't be any dangerous climate change. So if we just had a low-carbon technology or used solar or wind or renewables or biofuels, this wouldn't have been a problem. So past emissions are kind of causally inert. But you know, this doesn't seem very satisfactory to me. I mean, maybe one thought in his mind is we can't blame people in the past. But we can still hold them morally liable and bear that in mind. So we could take an asymmetric attitude towards their emissions and our emissions on that grounds, which we just discussed. But if we factor that out, I mean, it seems past emissions and present emissions are just completely symmetrical. So it's true of past emissions that if we don't emit now, there won't be a problem. But it's also true if they didn't emit then, there wouldn't be as much of a problem. So there's no difference between early emitters and late emitters in terms of their contribution to the problem. So it seems odd then to say that although they're causally symmetrical, the past ones don't matter. And the, th the third kind of query is, the general attitude here is we should treat the past as bygones and uh, ignore its relevance. But that seems implausible if the fact, if we bear in mind that those who are currently wealthy are often wealthy because of this history of high emissions in the past. So it's all very well for them to say, well, let's just ignore the past and start from now. But that's as if someone eats half a cake and then everyone else comes and then they say, okay, so the relevant issue is how do we share out the rest of the cake equally or something like that? They've eaten half the cake. And some people have emitted 60% of the total amount of absorptive capacity of the Earth's atmosphere. So I don't think we can dismiss past emissions like that. So let me just turn... You know, we've had three objections. This fourth one is not an objection. Uh, it's a charge of incompleteness. Now, the polluter pays principle says you pay for your contribution to the problem. But it kind of seems implausible to make people pay for every single emission. 
Because uh, people need to emit greenhouse gases to function, to live a minimally decent human life. We, we breathe, right? So we need to emit from that point of view. So what many people will then say is, well, um, the, we should have a moralised blue-to-pays principle. You should pay for, you know, in excess of your fair share of emissions. But there's a, such a thing as a fair share, and you should be given that kind of exempt, and then you should pay for anything in excess of the fair share. But then, of course, that raises the question, well, what counts as the fair share? And just to say polluters pay is incomplete. We need to say polluters pay for going beyond what they're entitled to emit. So we need some account of what they're entitled to do. There are two common answers given. Politically, by which I mean the one many activists affirm and, and NGOs and quite a few philosophers, is we should have equal per capita emissions. So in other words, we should just share out the Earth's atmospheric space equally. And then the polluter-pays principle applies if I exceed more than my equal share. Since the USA's emissions are about 19 units of carbon dioxide and say, China's uh, is about five. That's going to have very radical implications. Second answer is, well, we shouldn't equalise. We should distribute emission rights so that everyone can attain a minimally decent human life. So I think it's not ideal. I think it's, it's unfair. Let me give you a couple of reasons. Um, so I actually endorse egalitarian values, but I don't think it applies here. So one weirdness uh, from, uh, is that you might think, well, why equalise this one good? As an economist friend of mine put it, he doesn't have an equal per capita entitlement to aluminium. So why should he think you have an equal per capita entitlement to CO2 emissions? But also, generally theories of justice distribute a whole package of things, like income, wealth, opportunities, access to health, schooling. And they want everyone to have a fair share of the total package, not of each individual item. So... Um, that's what I mean by the problem of isolation. Why isolate this one good and have a principle like equality just for it? But building on that, you might think this is an implausible principle because it's insensitive to people's needs. Some people need more energy, perhaps because they're uh, older or infirm or they're pregnant women. And therefore, why equalise the resource when there's an unequal need? Why not um, distribute according to need there? And in uh, World War II, for example, when there was rationing, it's kind of interesting, but philosophically not relevant, but it's interesting that the rationing wasn't done on an equal basis. There were differential access rights for various goods, depending on whether you were a coal miner or a pregnant woman. There was a proposal for people in the northeast to get three times as much energy as people from the south on the crisis they needed it. But the southern Tory squires vetoed it because they needed it to drive their cars. But I think you know, differential needs is a good reason for rejecting equality there. And also people have differential access to energy sources. So if I have access to, um, say, solar or uh, nuclear or biofuels or wind or uh, wave power, what matters is access to energy. And it seems odd to fetishise access to fossil fuel energy. So why, why do I need equal greenhouse gas emission rights if I have access to all these other energy sources? So objections two and three are just a way of kind of saying we should contextualise people's needs here and it's odd to focus on greenhouse gases in isolation from people's general neediness, their access to other sources of energy. Politically what this would mean is um, many people in the developing world say if you give them equal amounts they won't be able to meet their vital needs. They need more than equal amounts. So then... 
If that's right, you might endorse this principle that agents are entitled to those greenhouse gas emissions needed to achieve a decent standard of living. And it's going to be a lot of argument as to how you specify that. Um, and probably it's not possible to specify it without eliminating any vagueness. But it has an advantage over equality, which is, you know, equality would compromise that principle. And it seems more important to ensure people have a decent standard of living than you equalise something, even though some will starve. So let's just apply this back to the polluter pays principle. You say, look, the polluter pays principle says people should pay for those emissions which exceed their fair share. Just given account of their fair share, they're entitled to this. And then principle two says they should pay for in excess of what is required to meet a decent standard of living. So, as I said, Americans are responsible for emitting per capita about 19 tonnes of carbon dioxide. Europeans are something like 12 or 15 Indians are way beneath, you know, I think they're about two or three. So there would have to be considerable redistribution for that to be fair. Now, I'm not saying this will happen. I think there's no likelihood of this happening, but this is the, the background the principle of justice we should assess climate agreements by. So let me sum up so far and then bring things to a close. So the Pluto-Pace principle is fairly straightforward. Has, we've had four challenges. The dead, the excusably ignorant the claim that past emissions are irrelevant, and the charge that it's just an incomplete account. And some of those have been addressed, like the incompleteness charge, and some of them have been rejected, like the one about uh, excusable ignorance. And I've put forward two principles. Basically, everyone should be allowed to emit that amount needed for them to achieve a decent standard of living. And then above that, people should pay for their emissions. So they should pay for the climate change caused by that in, in proportion with their emissions. But there are two gaps in what I've said so far, because I've said, um, you know, dead people can't pay, and poor people shouldn't have to pay. So who picks up the bill for the emissions of the past and the emissions of the poor? So if we exempt China, and by which I should say, I mean, the majority of Chinese citizens, not those above the threshold, but if we exempt the majority of Chinese citizens or Indian citizens, <coughs> who should pick up their bill, so to speak? And A and B is what I'm going to call the remainder. So who should pick up the remainder? Okay, well, this is where a second principle comes on the scene. It's a common principle of justice that people should pay in virtue of their ability to pay. I say it's common in the sense that uh, you find Adam Smith affirming it in The Wealth of Nations. You find economists uh, like Edgeworth defending it in the 19th century. Also John Stuart Mill and Henry Sidgwick, as you'll see. So quite a variety of people endorse this. And it's a purely forward-looking principle. It doesn't care how much you've contributed to the problem. You should pay because you have the ability to pay. Now, I gave an example earlier where um, I dropped some litter. We don't expect the most wealthy person to have to pick it up there. We expect the polluter to pay. But then uh, municipal rubbish, we often do think those with greater ability to pay should pay. So it's collected by the local council. The local council charges council taxes, and it's done according to rates, which roughly corresponds with wealth, because it corresponds to your house price. So maybe our intuitions are a little muddled here, because in the micro case of dropping litter, the polluter should pay, and in the more macro case of uh, waste disposal by councils, you know, we often think, I don't think anyone objects to the council doing it, and they don't object to it doing on an ability to pay principle. I'm just trying to motivate some support for this principle. 
Well, let, let me give you two more kind of technical arguments. One comes from the great uh, economist, A.C. Pigou, who was a utilitarian. And he says, well, it should go according to ability to pay for straightforward reasons of diminishing marginal utility. If you take £1,000 from a wealthy person and £1,000 from a poor person, obviously the loss of utility to the poor person is much greater. So if you tax the wealthiest, you'll um, decrease utility by far less. It actually has an incredibly radical implication because it might mean that we never get down to the middle class, so to speak. You just keep chipping away at the extraordinarily wealthy because you know, if they're multi-millionaires, uh, each million you take from them, well, it's an inconvenience, but it's not as much of a hardship as it were from uh, people lower down. So that could actually be a very radical version of it. Argument two, and it's important to notice these two arguments wouldn't come up with exactly the same interpretation of ability to pay. But argument two, in the principles of political economy, John Stuart Mill says that we should have a principle of equal sacrifice. Everyone should sort of tighten their belt, but it should hurt the same amount. And, of course, taking a bigger sum of money from the rich <coughs> will hurt equally to the smaller sum of money from the poor. So Mill had some objections to progressive uh, income tax rates. But the, the general principle is that one, that um, sacrifice should be equal, and that means you can take more from the wealthier. And similarly, Henry Sidgwick argues in these lines in Principles of Political Economy. Now, I think you know, that is a pretty compelling argument. If we're not making the polluter pay, and it's got to fall on someone, we could share it out equally. And, uh, but equally shouldn't just mean equal amount of money, but equal loss to our well-being. But there is something slightly odd about it, because it leaves itself vulnerable to an objection rather needlessly. And the objection people often voice is, it's purely forward-looking. Doesn't the past matter at all? Don't we care at all about how people got their wealth? So here's a proposed modification of the ability to pay. And it says, well, the bill for combating climate change should be borne by the advantage in part and just you know, remember, we're just talking about what I call the remainder, the emissions of past generations and the global poor. This remainder should be borne by people in, in proportion with their wealth because A, that shares the burden fairly, but B, and this is the addition, the entitlements of the wealthy came about in climate-endangering ways. So it says the past can matter, and there's two reasons why the wealthy should pay. One is you are wealthy and, and you can take the burden without compromising anything of great moral significance. But secondly, you're wearing that suit, so to speak. You inherited goods for which the price has not been fully paid. And that's what B speaks to. It says the wealthy have wealth that came about in climate-endangering ways. Now, then you might say, well, look, uh, that's true of many people, but what about people whose wealth comes about in an entirely clean way? I'd be interested to know if there are any examples of that, because... Everything you think of, you know, people often focus on manufacturing and think, well, that's high emitting, but service industries aren't. But of course they are, because service industries involve electricity for heating. People who work in them go home, so they drive often. They live in houses, and cement production is a source of high emissions. They uh, you know, watch TVs that were produced in a high emitting way. So unless you can find someone whose life is untainted by any of these processes... In a rough and ready way, I'm willing to say, well, as a, a rule of thumb, the wealthy have their wealth, and the pedigree of that has involved high emissions in the past. So 
Let me kind of bring things to a close. The question is, who should pay for climate change? Who should lower their emissions? Who should pay for adaptation needed to cope with it? And here are three principles that should guide that. One is people should be exempted, not liable for emissions that they can claim are required to meet their fundamental needs. But then principle two says people should pay because and to the extent that they emitted more than that. They're just imposing costs on other people for no justifiable reason. But then I said principle two is incomplete because there are, there are emissions of people who are no longer alive and there are emissions of people who should be exempted from paying, the dead and the, and the poor. So that's when we say, well, this can be covered by another principle, ability to pay. This is what we should use when there isn't a polluter around that we should hold liable. But then I said, well, but the ability to pay principle can be modified to strengthen it. So you can say to high emitters, um, sorry, to, to wealthy people, you should pay because you can, but also where did your wealth come from? At that point, I'll uh, stop and let you uh, ask questions and objections. Thanks so